Did you call it a 10? Your vacation has destroyed you. It's funny, back to kind of like getting the same comment over and over again. I felt like, you know, people that watch my content know that I like ironically say the X. But every time I say it, they're like, you know, it's the iPhone 10, right? I'm just like, this is, I do this for a living. You think I don't know it's the iPhone 10? I'm like, come on. <laughs> like. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Swift Over Coffee Podcast. I'm Paul Hudson. And I'm Sean Allen. And I believe you've just finished your six-week vacation now, Sean, is that right? Yes, and uh, it was rough. It was a long one. Uh, yesterday, Friday, was my first day back at work, and uh, it felt like my first day at work ever. Like, I forgot how to code. I opened up my, <laughs> my, my project, and I'm like, wait, what does this do again? Like, holy crap. So it's going to take a few days to kind of reacclimate, but uh, it's kind of funny how quickly you can kind of forget how to code. It's true, it's true. But for me, I, I started early. I was, I was there on uh, New Year's Day uh, posting my first article. I'm doing an article a day now five days a week at least until WWDC. Plus for all of January, I'm doing Xcode in 10 seconds videos uh, on YouTube. So it's, it's a really intense period for me. I get no time off. And here we are at our 10th episode of this podcast already. Wow. What, so now that we've done 10 of them, I know this was like your, your first foray into podcasting. What, what have you learned? Uh, <laughs> I've learned I know literally nothing about getting good microphone settings, and I need to sit still while talking. I often sort of sort of lean backwards, and my voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter, <laughs> and then lean forwards again. You know, it just sounds terrible sometimes. Right? How about you? Yeah. So I've learned the sound in my apartment sucks. You know, when you live in it, it's a it's a one bedroom studio, so I have this one like air conditioning vent that is incredibly loud. And Paul would always say, "Wow, it's really loud in the background. What's going on?" And I'm like, "I don't know," you know, because <laughs> I'm so used to it. And then now that I've been gone for six weeks, like you said, I came back. I was like, holy crap. It sounds like there's a leaf blower in my apartment. I like, I get what you were talking about, how loud this sounds. So I've got this, all this contraptions trying to like, you know, minimize the sound of my apartment. It's actually pretty funny watching me get set up for the, uh, for the podcast each and every episode. Well, in this 10th episode, we'll be talking about menu bars in iOS, string interpolation in Swift 5, plus of course our picks, and this episode's open ballot, are you tired of Apple's simultaneous annual release cycle? So let's dive into some news stories, Paul. And first up, let's talk about an interesting blog post from the makers of the app, Codia. Uh, this has been making the rounds lately. It's pretty cool, but it's it's about adding Mac OS-like menus to iOS apps, like, you know, where you click on a button and there's a drop-down menu and you can scroll it. Uh, now, this doesn't seem so far-fetched on an iPad app. Like, I can see that working. But for the iPhone, I'm just really not sure about that. But that's what this post is all about. Let's face it, the limiting factor with phones is always going to be the screen size. And at this point, nothing more. Now, USB-C iPhones are likely, if not certain, to arrive in about nine months, perhaps with USB-C AirPods in tow, at which point it'll become possible to connect your phone to an external screen and power your main computer from this tiny little phone. And the CPU in these things is certainly capable enough these days. So I don't think we should be too worried about a small screen size because things are moving very, very quickly. So yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point, Paul. I never thought of that, like, you know, using the, your phone to power an external monitor, but that doesn't really seem that far-fetched, does it? Well, I think Samsung or Microsoft or Nokia, one of those, uh, definitely Samsung, did make a device you could plug into a screen, connect a, a keyboard and a mouse to, and have a full-on computer. I think it even used Linux at the time. 
Yeah, so whether you agree with this you know, menu design paradigm or not on the phone, the article is worth a read. It's really interesting because it details how they handled a lot of the issues you know, when building this. Um, things like they wanted their drop-down menu uh, to be like curved, so how they use the UI Bezier path. And it's also a translucent uh, you know, menu. So there's things with you know, dealing with drop shadows with the translucency and all that stuff, touch interactions. And then there's also some small edge cases. Like if you can imagine your phone, flip it to landscape mode and pull up the keyboard, there's not a lot of real estate left to work with. So the menus, you know, they had to be scrollable. So reading about how they handled all that stuff was, was super interesting. But again, I'm not terribly sold on this kind of thing for the iPhone. But like you said, if it's, you know, powering an external monitor, that's a different story. I, I was using menus like this, not nowhere near as pretty for a start, but like this on early Windows phone devices. And although back then it was very clumsy, because of course it had a resistive touchscreen and the terrible OS, it definitely worked fine. With, with a stylus, mind you. Um, now, the Kadea folks are smart. They've done a really slick, beautiful implementation. I think it's time to let the market decide just by trying it out. Put it out there, see where it goes. Up next, we have a string interpolation uh, templating library from Ia Puchka that uses a nice new uh, Swift 5 string interpolation system that we covered in you know a few episodes back. Uh, and it's called, you know, wait for it, interpolate. <laughs> so link will be in the show notes if you want to check out that library. And uh, now, Paul, I, I currently live in the present. You know, I'm still on Swift 4.2. You like to live in the future in Swift 5. So tell us the tales from this wonderful future. <laughs> um, I finally got time to play with a new string interpolation system in Swift 5. We mentioned it in a previous episode. Uh, I spent most of the day noodling around with it, in fact. And it's everything I had heard. It's completely flexible. So you can do pretty much whatever you like now either by uh, specific customizations for a single type or building whole types out of string interpolation. And this repo is quite brilliant, not only for its name, the name is interplate. So it's interpolate plus template. Oh, it's clever anyway. Sure, the syntax I think is clumsy compared to something like leaf or twig, but as a demonstration of what's possible, which we really need right now for these new features, I think it's totally perfect. It's funny, I didn't even catch that on the name, even as I was introducing the topic. I, I, I just said interpolate because that's just how I read it. You know, your eyes see, you know, words that you think. So that's that's really clever. I like that. Um, you need some more coffee, Sean. <laughs> with it for sure. Um, so moving on, let's talk about some quick stats that Apple has released. Uh, and that's iOS 12 reaching 75% uh, with iOS 11 and 12 combining for 92% of all iOS devices. So it's pretty rapid adoption. And according to them, this has outpaced iOS's uh, 11 adoption by about 10%. So and a little side note uh, on devices released in the last four years. So I, I think that's, you know, the six or six S uh, and above that number goes up to 95%. So some pretty quick adoption here. These are the kind of stats my inner mathematician really hates. iOS 12 outpaced iOS 11 by 10 percentage points, not 10%. This is why being technically correct is the best kind of correct. But let's face it, none of this is surprising. Apple did so much work on performance that no one was afraid to upgrade. It was a no-brainer. Just upgrade. Why not? In fact, they did so much work in making old devices faster that many think this played a part in Apple having to issue their first revenue warning in 16 years. Yeah, we we don't want to talk about that, Paul. Keep that on keep that on the down low. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, it's a positive, uplifting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yes, um, I, they'll be fine. We all know. We'll forget. My opinion. We'll forget about this in six months, and it'll be fine. But anyway, your inner mathematician hate aside, I think the key takeaway here is that iOS 12 was adopted 
very, very quickly. And as Paul kind of pointed out, that was pretty much expected. You know, many companies support iOS version N minus one. So when iOS 11 was the big thing, when it was new, they'd have iOS 11 plus iOS 10. Uh, and some companies do N minus two, so they'd have supported iOS 9 as well. So I, I think iOS 12 has done such a good job for so many people that maybe those N minus two folks can catch a break here and ditch iOS 10 early and just support 12 and 11. As with every episode, it's time for our picks. Paul, what do you got for us? So my pick uh, is about storyboards and programmatic code. Uh, so yesterday, as we record this, uh, I naively decided to write a tweet asking folks whether they prefer to use storyboards or do their UI in code. And I say naively because I tweeted it by asking folks to favorite it if they preferred storyboards or retweet if they'd used code. Something I've seen before many times. I thought, this is normal, I'll just do that. But it immediately took on a life of its own. Uh, so what I learned pretty much immediately, like I said, is that tweets like that are biased towards favorites rather than retweets. Many folks told me that straight away. Um, because favoriting something that's effectively private, no one really knows you favorited it ultimately. They could look, but no one really does. But retweeting, of course, passes on the tweet to all the followers, which many folks don't want to do. Now, before writing the tweet, I thought to myself, which one of these two, retweet or favorite, is likely to cause bias? And, stupidly, I came to the opposite conclusion. Without, of course, no research, I figured it'd be biased towards retweets, because we all have our little filter bubbles on Twitter, people who are like us and think like us. Uh, I thought it would cause word to spread amongst folk with similar views. If you do your stuff with code, your followers or friends are likely to do as well. So it's spread in favor of retweets. I was very wrong. <laughs> well, well, first of all, Paul, you're really showing your age here. Favoriting on Twitter went away a couple years ago. It's the, the heart and the likes now. You even showed the heart animation in your tweet, how much you loved it. That's true. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but anyway, let me just say that I saw this happen in real time, and I, I was honestly dying laughing to myself. No offense, but uh, you got a ton of replies saying how using you know retweets and likes was going to skew the results, and it just made me think of what I go through with my YouTube comments, and you know I've made... 200 some videos so of course i've made plenty of mistakes in my tutorials and stuff and when you do uh the internet will let you know and i've gotten the same comment <laughs> over and over for like a year uh even when i make like an addendum at the very top of the description you know i'm just like i know you know when, when you know a year and a half later somebody's pointing out the mistake you made it's like oh my gosh i know come on <laughs> so i just wanted to say real quick you know that that really made me laugh watching you go through that uh you know misery loves company <laughs> I think if, if people just read the comments first, and I know reading the YouTube comments is a big no-no, but just go and see. Folks told me this already five times. I do know. I do. Anyway, at this point, my tweet is past 1,000 likes and uh, 350 retweets. So technically, the storyboard side won. However, following on from what folks told me repeatedly, I ran a Twitter poll using uh, Twitter's built-in poll system. This lets you vote anonymously, of course, so there's no bias, or at least less bias. You can still vote with multiple accounts if you want to. Um, and, you know, storyboards still won. 57% of people voted for storyboards versus 43% for programmatic. Now, obviously, it's a lot closer than the open poll I ran, where it was something like three quarters were for storyboards. Uh, helpfully, it made far fewer complaints. But it was interesting to see that storyboards pulled ahead still. And I said it's interesting because I get so many complaints from people because most of my tutorials are written using storyboards. 
And people write to me saying, why do you use storyboards? They do all their UI and code, only beginners do it in storyboards. But now it seems that this minority are just the ones shouting the loudest. Lots of people, including some really senior, well-known developers on the you know, iOS speaking circuit, said they went for the storyboard option. So it really caused me to rethink this, because I was starting to believe the uh, programmatic side were, were the overwhelming majority, when in fact they are the minority by quite a way. So we all know this is a hotly debated topic and seeing those results, you know, you can see why. But my opinion, I don't think there's a blanket right or wrong answer. It's it's a situation based on you know your project, your team, your preferences. Uh, but I will agree the arrogant, you know, you're a noob if you use storyboards narrative like that needs to stop. It's just ridiculous. Anytime, like you said, the loud minority pops up like I never like fight it in my head. I'm just like, you know, cool, bro. <laughs> like I just move on, you know, so it is that loud minority, like you said. I saw a great blog post recently was by about um, uh, income for a game that was cross-platform and it was macOS, Windows and Linux. And they said that Linux by far reported the most bugs. They were most requesting features and fixes and so forth. And they accounted for less than 1% of the revenue because <laughs> they just shout the loudest. And right, that goes yeah. a long way. Anyway... What is your pick for this episode, Sean? Uh, so, Paul, I came across a pretty fun article from uh, Thomas Hanning all about how iOS development has evolved uh, over the last eight years. And now I just I just love hearing this sort of stuff. Anything I'm interested in or involved in, like I want to know the history of it. So, for example, I started my iOS development career alongside the release of Swift. So I've pretty much ignored Objective-C. You know, what, what's Kylo Ren from Star Wars say in, in The Last Jedi? He says, you know, let the past die. Kill it if you have to. So <laughs> that, that's, that's a bit extreme, I know, but that's kind of been my attitude with Objective-C. I'm just like, get it away from me. You heard it here first, folks. Sean is trying to kill Objective-C. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It has cost me opportunities, but it's kind of the strategy I took. I'm just all in Swift and we'll see, see how that goes. So I've been there from the beginning, but I still love hearing these old pre-Swift iOS development war stories. <laughs> you know, I got interviewed in Moscow a month ago. And they were asking me, what was it like in the early days of the App Store? And honestly, it felt really weird. It wasn't that long ago, was it? I mean, almost, was it? almost 10 years, right? 2009, 10, I think it came out, something like that. I mean, it's... I wasn't there for the very, very earliest days. I remember downloading the first, first beta SDK and thinking, oh, wow, this is awful. <laughs> I was like, you know, what, the glass buttons are just pictures of buttons? Like, <laughs> they were not, not being rendered. And, oh, Objective-C, oh, my goodness. It took me until iOS uh, 3, uh, iPhone OS 3, sorry, before I launched my first apps. Oh. So this article goes through some some topics and we'll hit up each one of those topics. And first up, Thomas talks about Swift, which of course you got to talk about that first. That's probably the biggest evolution in the, in the profession so far. Um, and he talks about how much of a bombshell the announcement was, you know, and for those that don't know, it got announced at WWDC 2014. And, you know, nowadays any major announcement from these Apple events gets leaked. But, but not this one, like nobody knew it was coming. So do you remember your reaction, Paul? And this is a genuine question because I don't know the answer here is like, your site is called Hacking with Swift. So like, what were you doing before Swift? Hacking with Objective-C? Like, what, what were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had written multiple books and countless thousands of pages of, of coding tutorials beforehand, but not on Objective-C, um, on C-sharp, on PHP, on other stuff. Um, the most I had done was creating an Objective-C wrapper that I'd called EasyOC, which I used to teach kids at a nearby school. I took a lot of the Objective-C complexity out, like uh, using at signs everywhere, and helped them make games in SpriteKit for iOS 7. But I don't, I don't remember, remember my actual Swift reaction. I remember being excited, I remember downloading the book on day one, reading through the entire book at my desk at the office, 
to absorb it all and asking questions straight away. What does this do? What does that do? What do you think this means? Da, 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 and then trying it out. And I actually shipped an app uh, for the iOS 8 launch day. You know, the first day Swift could be launched, I shipped an app on that day. So right. I was clearly all in from day one. Yeah, nice. Uh, so another big evolution uh, in the iOS development world is in memory management. Now, all of us Swift babies like myself will thankfully never know the pain of, you know, having to release and retain all over your code base. I said that like I know what I'm talking about. I've just heard the stories. I don't know what it's really like. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, this thankfully went away with the release of Arc or automatic reference counting. Uh, but I imagine this was a pretty big win for iOS developers when it was released. Well, just to recap for folks who haven't been through uh, this trial by fire, in the old days, you had to tell the system, please retain this RAM, please release this RAM at the right time. And it was it's brilliant. It's, it's still being used by Swift. That's what Arc is. It adds retain and release for you. And it actually took me a long time to switch to Arc. Uh, and I think I got lucky in that respect because, you know, I, I actually loved doing retain release. I worked really hard to make sure my code was leak free and it made me write some very thoughtful, careful code. You learn to say retain release at the right times. It's baked into your way of thinking. But in the early days of Arc, it would actually slow down your programs because the Arc system would add too many retains and releases to your code. Um, because having too many was effectively being conservative. If you over retain, then release it, nothing bad happens. But if you don't retain enough, it would cause objects to be destroyed. Uh, anyway, it's been optimized extensively since those days now, so it's, uh, it's all good. So next up, I think this is something that all the Swift babies can feel, and that is the evolution of all the different screen sizes, right? For the first couple of years, all you had was that iPhone you know, 3 or, or 4 screen size of a 480 by 320. Uh, so building UIs must have been much simpler back then, you know. but slowly over time, the iPhone 5 comes out, gets a little longer, as did the 6. And then, you know, what's going on now? We got a 6 Plus, which evolves into the 10 series of phones, you know, the 10S, 10R, 10S Max, and it's getting out of hand. And then it's like, oh, for good measure, let's throw in the, the iPad with a bunch of sizes too, you know? I remember clearly knowing all the asset sizes for shipping an iPhone app. You know, your icon had to be this big, uh, exact size, your splash screen was this big and so forth, because you could memorize them all. And that's basically impossible. What I think we're now in a third stage. You know, in the first stage was a hard code size, 4320, fine. Second stage was, oh my goodness, iPhone 5, 6, 6 Max, whatever. All, all sorts of sizes and shapes and ratios. The third stage now, the, I used to call them Swift babies now, coming to Swift, <laughs> no longer have the preconception that screen sizes are changing. They are learning from day one, you cannot predict the screen size. It could be anything. It could have notches anywhere, rounded corners, who knows what, triangular shape, pff, got no idea anymore. <laughs> so they are no longer even thinking about trying to uh, do it by hand, auto layout, stack views and similar are the standard being learned. You know, I remember writing a game in Objective C++ and OpenGL, targeting just that one screen size, the original iPhone screen size. And it was so nice. I even remember seeing a retina screen for the first time. I queued up early in the morning at a, there's a phone store to get one, an iPhone 4. And I didn't really see what the fuss was all about. I must have needed new glasses or something at the time because it's clearly quite dramatic. But I do remember being really excited by the iPad. Back then it shipped in the US before the UK. But I wrote a game for it again in Objective-C and uh, C++ and OpenGL, um, but I didn't have a device. So I had to basically write this game, test it in the awful iPad simulator, and hope for the best. Unfortunately, it worked out. 
Good. That sounds like a, a really, <laughs> really big roll of the dice there, but it's, it sounded like it worked out. And uh, all right, moving on. So I saved the best topic for last in this article, and that is the how the community has evolved. So obviously, iOS developer wasn't even a profession, you know, a decade ago. So as a profession goes from brand new, as it matures, the community will grow with it. Uh, I love this community, and I think it's safe to say that the release of Swift caused an explosion in like websites, blogs, YouTube channels, podcasts. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be part of the community and looking forward to seeing it grow even more uh, as Swift, you know, as Chris Latner once said, you know, takes over the world or, or something along those lines. It's fair to say that one of the greatest privileges of my life is getting to help so many aspiring Swift developers reach and I hope exceed their goals. I, I just love it. You know, I, ca I cannot get tired of hearing from folks that they are getting to build the apps they want to solve their problems. And every so often someone gets in touch to say my work inspired them somehow and it just totally lights up my day. This community is flourishing in a way I haven't seen since the iPad launch. New conferences are appearing every single year, two or three at a time sometimes. Amazing new open source projects like Vapor or new newsletters or podcasts like this one or live streams and more. It's incredible and it's just so much fun to be part of. And now we come to everyone's favorite section, the open ballot. Our question this time was, are you tired of Apple's simultaneous annual releases of all their operating systems? Or do you like getting everything bumped all at once? And I think for the first time, almost everyone was in favor of one side, keeping the current format, which I think there's a lot. Folks clearly love Apple's annual dub dub release dump. Kicking off with some feedback on hardware, Dan O'Leary said, Apple is a hardware company. Hardware moves slower than software, so I respect their schedule of major software releases to better align with advancements in hardware. And Subin Revy said, I'm in favor of annual releases for the OS and other software updates, but with regards to devices, I would rather prefer a new device update less frequently. And it's very really strange of kind of got stuck into this annual cycle where dub-dub happens in June, and then new iPhones with new stuff arrive in September. And it's caused Apple to have to bump iOS in interesting ways at the last minute and dump a lot of a APIs on us. Uh, things like the True Depth camera in the iPhone 10 when that first shipped, they had to release new APIs at the last minute uh, for us to work with, which is it's painful. Well, so I'm not sure what you're saying. Are you saying the phone should be released later, like October or November? Because I think the developers do need some window. You know, you, you hear all this new stuff coming out. Uh, you do need some time to prepare your apps and get ready and figure it out. So are you saying the uh, dub, the phone should be not, uh, released at dub dub or, you know, give us more time, a couple more months? Well, the thing is, if the phone sh ships before uh, the iOS update happens, the camera can be in there working just fine. It could even be in consumers' hands if they want to do it that way. And then Apple could say, okay, now we're releasing the API for everyone to use it. Things like Core NFC, when that shipped, oh, hey, that works fine in iPhone 7. It just worked. It always, it was there. Now we're updating it so everyone can start using it. They could do that more often, perhaps. We had some answers about minimizing disruption. Louis said, I believe the most impactful and possibly breaking changes to a platform should happen simultaneously because I don't want to be bothered to make big adjustments more frequently. And Warren said, I think I like it, but I have no way of knowing how to handle the alternative. At least the annual release means I know when to start getting ready. Yeah, I, I particularly agree with Warren's take on this. It's all about the planning for me. You know each and every year in June, 
you're getting a plethora of new features and new stuff to work with. So like you said, you, you can plan for that and kind of plan your releases around that. So uh, I'm all about kind of the uh, the upfront notice of knowing what's happening. Yeah, I think we all now know that June's basically a write-off. Right, right. <laughs> you know, people want to stop, watch the keynote, watch some important videos, maybe go to San Jose to do their actual event. We know it's going to be bad. But they used to do tech talks around the world. They'd come to London or Berlin or wherever to say, here are some talks just for you folks to have ideas and so forth. But I am really glad that Swift broke out the dub-dub cycle. It used to be, you know, Apple needs money, release a new iPhone every year. New iPhone means new Xcode for some reason. New Xcode means new Swift and so forth. They were all tied in, which is very, very annoying. And there is no reason Swift updates have to collide with WW as well. That's just heaping on the pain. So splitting that out a little bit is really nice. We had some answers about trying things out. Chris Knapps Grimberg says, I like new releases, otherwise life can be boring. And also, programming should be fun, and it's okay if we get excited about new things and try them out. And then Roblox said, I like it in bulk the way it is now because there might be a feature or new tech that can be introduced and I wouldn't want to be out of sync with different devices. And Mihai Leonte said, annual's fine, it feels like Christmas. And I like learning about all new app OS features on a single day all at once. Well, you say single day, Mihai, but it's a, it's a whole week of stuff. <laughs> right, yeah. The videos come out you know, once a day over five days and there's multiple tracks and so forth. They release so many. I don't know how many hours it actually is, but it's a heck of a lot. Plus all the sample code and other things. And starting, I think, what, last year? They started doing videos that weren't even in DubDub. You know, there's one on speech, or was that the year before perhaps? One on speech where they thought, here's a video, it wasn't worth a full DubDub session, but we want to put the thing in there and lump it in. So there's, there's so much to consume in one big lump and you end up missing out on stuff. I kind of disagree with that. I love the big lump. Yes, you do end up missing stuff, but I echo Mihai's uh, sentiment here with it feels like Christmas for those that celebrate that sort of thing. Uh, I think it's better than Christmas, to be honest with you. It's the thing I look forward to the most every year, and it is just this huge... (laughs) Just, I, it's such a glorious week. I love it. I do agree with what you said. You do miss some stuff. It's impossible to watch everything, but I just love the excitement and the, you know, everybody's here. Well, I live in San Francisco, so it's nice having everybody converge on my city. Not my city, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, so just the whole event, I just love. So I, I like it being annual. There's a great comment here from Andrew Miyoke saying, annual updates are fine, but updates should happen on individual apps more frequently. Um, I see what he's saying here. I I love the spectacle of the keynote, right? Because if you take that away, you know, you're not going to get this grand keynote. Uh, and like I said, maybe I'm a sucker, but I, I love that sort of stuff. So give it to me all at once. I like it. I don't know. I, I, I think if Safari or Maps or similar small apps that make the core of the OS were able to be updated independently of the OS, it'd be so nice. I mean, Android does that for their browser. And in fact, even their, I think their browser component, their version of WebKit is also updated in the background outside of Android OS, I believe. So things just get better regularly throughout the year. We had one answer, one answer against the idea from Steam Powered Swift saying, yes, I am tired of a newer OS forcing us devs to buy newer Macs every time they're obsolete. I agree that buying new Macs is a very expensive hobby, but I want to get to the the question here. Do we need a new OS every year? Because a long time went by when Xcode was not updated every year. When iOS was the, changed all that, it, we got into this lockstep new year, new phone thing, and it's just causing churn, lots and lots of churn, and I'm not sure it's helped in the long term. Do To your point, do we need it? Probably not. 
Do I want it? <laughs> yes. Christmas. <laughs> That's where I stand. <laughs> and one here to end on from David Smith. Now, I should say David Smith, he's very funny. He's Catfish Man on Twitter. Uh, he used to work for a long time on the Foundation team. You know, this man knows so much about the internals of the way Foundation works, you know, UUIDs or URLs or particularly uh, user defaults. Um, anyway, he recently switched to the Swift team. Uh, so he said... Is this question trying to give me a heart attack? <laughs> so <laughs> I pointed out he now works in the Swiss team and they had their own schedule. And he replied, I could have sympathy heart attacks. Uh, seriously, though, branch management is scary enough with just dot releases and major releases. Now, I would love to say in response, fine, release early, release often, the open source way. But uh, as listeners may know, Apple really do not do agile. They are like anti-agile. They are totally all about waterfall. And I guess for that reason alone, we're stuck with annual releases for the foreseeable future. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Swift Over Coffee. But as always, we want to leave you with next episode's open ballot. And that is, you know, ARKit. Like, what is it good for, really? At Dubber this year, they had those gorgeous, you know, massive wooden app store sized tables out in the expo hall. And uh, they were completely bare, nothing on them. Big, empty, gorgeous tables, blank. And folks were holding up iPads, playing games around this table. And it just felt really sad. These gorgeous wooden things ignored just for AR kit. You know, I mean, you don't have tables like that at your house all over the place? Like, everybody has those, right? Those huge tables. Yeah. <laughs> How much do they cost? You reckon? It's a lot of money. <laughs> right. Well, I am. So I feature ARKit a lot on Swift News, and really we're in the prototyping phase. So I'm excited to see what comes about this. So I think the ARKit future is promising, but we'll see what everybody else has to say. Uh, all right. Tell all your friends to subscribe. And if you're not following us on Twitter at Swift Over Coffee, please do that. And uh, if you really like us, leave a review on the App Store. We'll really appreciate you for that. Leave a review. <laughs> all right. See you in the next one. Bye. Well,